a transition to uh, in, in our Christian history where the gospel goes out to the nations. And so soon we'll be entering into the missionary journeys of Paul, which serve, as one commentator said, a tunnel of light to all the epistles and letters that you read in the Bible that Paul has written. And we know that we have learned that Acts is ultimately about giving us an adequate testimony that God, through his son, will ensure that the gospel will go to the whole world and then the end will come. And so we look expectantly with hope at the gospel reaching the nations, people coming to know Christ and the world being full of the glory of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We know that the world is full of the glory of the Lord. It's just the fact that people are blind to it and they don't see. And if they saw how they would live differently. And we, even as Christian believers, have to be reminded that this world is the Lord's and he is glorious. Today we look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I want to read the entirety of the text. It's a, a very dramatic scene, uh, beginning with a martyrdom and ending with a vindication of God's saints. It says about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. <clears throat> when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased, multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had completed, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. This chapter, at first glance, comes across by its central story, and that is of Peter being rescued by the Lord out of the prison. But a fuller look at this in what I plan to preach to you now is really under the banner of the church's Gethsemane or the church's Mount Olivet. And if you remember, it was in Gethsemane or a Mount of Olives that Jesus had prayed. And it says that he had prayed so fervently that his sweat became like great drops of blood. He was shaken in his humanity, the Son of God, shaken and thrown down there in the garden by what was facing him. I read Psalm 22 this morning, and it's a good picture. For it is soon after on the cross, he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced in that garden both not only physical, but sufferings of his own soul for us. He would be separated from God to be to bring us to God. And we see that his humanity there in prayer showed us not merely an example, but showed us the intercession of our Lord on our behalf. And it set the pace for what the church also would do as we see it replicated now by his spirit in the lives of his people. And you see here, indeed, prayer taking up the action of the church and not merely prayer. But it is the same word used in that place in the garden for the type of prayer that was prayed. If you were to go to that text, you'll find that it was earnest literally stretched out prayer. The word is also used at the end of John chapter 21 when Jesus said to Peter, 
the way in which he would die would be there will be a day that people would take him to where he didn't want to go. They would dress him. They would stretch him out. And that word, stretch him out, is the description used here of the earnest prayer, the Gethsemane-type prayer that we see in the center of this text. So when I look at this text now, I see the church's Gethsemane. And I want to walk through the text and prove further why. But in the back of our minds, I'd like to to have a question in our minds concerning the text and concerning our own lives. And that is, why are we afraid of the civil government when we have a God who will judge them? Now, when we look at this text, we begin with a tyrant named Herod. And he is a tyrant who is in favor with the religion that is popular of the day of the Jews. He is so popular that it's recorded in one place, according to F.F. Bruce, that he read the law in the temple. And some had some doubts because he was an Adamian, which is a descendant there of Edom. And he would be uh, uh, from Esau. And therefore, they would have doubts about Herod in some respect. But then they would say this. We gladly hear him. You are our brother. Herod sought to please the crowds all the time in his life. And he was accepted by the Jewish people to the extent that it's also said, as I heard from William Still in a sermon in his research, that they actually, he actually had paid in many cases for the offerings that were to come with the Nazarite vows placed by many of the Jews in the temple. The Jews loved him. He was accepted by them. And he sought the popularity of them. In the temple, <clears throat> he was looked at as a hero. And he liked, as you see here, He liked the applause of men. He was over a large area, larger than the other Herods were over. If you remember Herod the Great, the one whom we see back in the Gospels, who was responsible for much of the suffering there at the time of Jesus' incarnation. He's the great grand he's the grandfather, I'm sorry, not the great, the grandfather of this man. And at the time. You had the kingdom cut into four parts. But by this time, it is handed completely over all four parts to this Herod Agrippa. There's another Herod Agrippa that shows up later. It's not the same one. This Agrippa is king over the whole land. And we see that by the end because he is controlling the food supply. He's controlling the trade. As late R.C. Sproul points out, whenever you have the borders open for trade and commerce, export and importing, you're not so much worried about war. But when the leader begins to cut those things off, there's often fighting. No different in any time in history. We see what a tyrant does. We see the actions, the control the love for the popularity that goes again and again 
in the lives of such people. So what does he do? He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, meaning that James is not the only one who suffered. But this is the first apostle who's martyred, not the first martyr. For we know Stephen was the first martyr of the church here. But we see the first apostle now. They're coming after the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And the whole notion of Rome that makes popular that Peter is the main person of the church and that Rome is the main place is completely blown away by the actual history of the New Testament church. Because we see here the church is operating mainly out of Jerusalem. And we'll see later that James, the brother of the Lord, is the leader of that church. And he is largely, if anybody is looked at as a central figure, it's James, the brother of Jesus, and not Peter, the apostle, who is a spokesperson for the apostles and indeed an important figure. But he is not one who was looked at as the main leader of the church. So Herod lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And if you remember, James, the brother of John, was one with John who had asked the Lord if he could sit him and his brother at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. One place it says that he got his mother to do so. That's a great Mother's Day sermon, isn't it? Probably not. But the idea is that these were zealous men. And Jesus looked at them and said, Can you drink the cup that I will drink? And he concludes to them that they will drink the cup that he drinks. Well, this is fulfillment, at least for James, at what that looked like. John, the brother, would go on to live the longest into old age, as tradition tells us. Out of all the apostles, all the other apostles are said to be martyred. We have external records, some traditions that are a little um, hard to ascertain as far as location and where, but we have records of all the apostles being killed. Now, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, is the key here, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. So he's getting a thrill out of this popularity. And note there's one thing. The sovereignty of God here is not questioned at all. The church doesn't bat an eye at James's death and martyrdom. They don't go and begin to say, why God? Or any of that. It almost seems they expected death, especially for the apostles. They would suffer for the Lord. They would just identify as Christians in Antioch. There's not a moment that they're sitting there questioning God's sovereignty in the death of one of the leaders of the church. They don't skip a beat. They continue on. Herod continues to go after the church and he takes Peter. And he does so in the midst of unleavened bread, which is a key indicator. There's a pattern of Peter and the apostles sharing the same tract as their Lord had shared because it is here again at the Passover. And a main figure is about to be killed apart from a miracle. 
And it says here, During the days of unleavened bread, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. And that's not unusual for the type of guarding of such. But he intends here, after the Passover, and the reason why is because, again, Herod and the Jews are like this. And that's why when we look at biblical history as well, the book of Revelation in particular is written by John. And it's written in particular to tell us of the of the events of and the relationships, especially in the first century, that involved a lot of tyranny. And what you have already happening here is the Jews are acting as a prostitute riding on the beast of Rome. They're right here. You can't miss it. Herod, the leader, the leader here, this Roman king, is, is here loving to ride on the beast. Uh, or he's loving to be the beast that's ridden on by the unbelieving Jews. And that's what comes out later, as you see in the latter part of Revelation before around 8, 17 through uh, 19, as you see there, you see this, this cooperation between the unbelieving Jews and the civil government. Now, there's good news about all of that is God is in the business of turning beasts back into men. And there's no reason to ever fear the most beastly of governments of any time. But we must understand something in regards to the biblical history, and that is there's this relationship being built and the greatest enemy that the church is dealing with is not merely the state. It's what is giving, is fanning the flame of the state to go after the Christians. Mainly, if we could call it in contemporary terms, the liberal church. The unbelieving Jews here and the liberal church in our day. That's largely the greatest enemy that exists against the church of any time and the people of God is those that are fanning the flame of civil leaders to bring persecution down upon true believers. Now, as we continue through the passage, we see the Passover stops the ability for Herod to bring execution because he cares what the Jews think and he's going to abide by the Jewish law that they would not execute a man there during their their feast. But it says when he was about to bring him out, you remember how how that uh, Jesus was brought out before the people. And note that the state needed not to be fearful of the Christian religion at all. Pilate even washed his hands and said, I find no guilt in this man. Why? Because he told him his kingdom's not of this world. And he says, I find no guilt in this man. There was not a threat against the civil rulers and authorities on this world. The greatest threat was against those 
who held to their religion as idolatrous in this world, who had a false religion. And therefore they cried, crucify him, crucify him. The same type of spirit is found when we find the, the end of the text where we, <clears throat> we see them shouting that this is the voice of a, a God, not a man, to Herod. They love to fan the flame of the civil government so that it would destroy those who affect their false religion. Well, what did they do in response to all this madness, all this tyranny, and all of this murderous activity, and the potential that the lead spokesman of the apostles at the time, who was spoken to and said upon this rock, upon that rock, the confession or the representation of those apostles, he would build the church. Which it does come about that God, through his son, builds his church on the apostles and the prophets. He builds upon them. They're the foundation. That's what he's doing. But, but what do they do? What is their response to it? One, they're not questioning God. They're not asking God why here. They're not staging protests. They're not carrying around anything that's very full of publicity. They're going to their father in secret, trusting that he will reward them openly. They understand that there's a king over the kings of the earth. They understand that there's one who's going to make the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of their God. And they have confidence in that. So what do they do? They pray. They pray like Jesus prayed in the garden facing the cross. They pray stretched out prayer, as it says here, earnest prayer. In particular for Peter. Now, we don't know what they prayed for Peter. There's no indication that they prayed for his release, nor is there indication that they didn't. Those details are not shared. But they prayed for him earnestly, stretched out prayer, Gethsemane, Type prayer. And then what happened? Well, before we say what happened, it doesn't mean that they didn't pray for James. And it doesn't mean that God did not answer their prayers for James. You see, whether death or deliverance or whatever came their way, according to Romans 8 37, they saw themselves as more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It wasn't about death or life. It was that God would be glorified whether by death or by life. Death and life weren't the deciding factor. The glory of God was. That's what the Christian lived for of these days. They weren't seeking to avoid death. They weren't seeking to avoid life. Their aim was glorifying God in either of God's will. And God may will it. That Peter would die, or he may will it, that Peter would live. That was in God's hands. And all such prayer that submits to God has this in mind. That his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, his will is not always that we live. His will is not always that we have comfort. But sometimes it is. But mark it down, 
He never forsakes his church. He didn't forsake the brother of John, James. He didn't forsake Peter, and he didn't forsake any of his people. He was with them and near to them as ever before. And the world can't understand such things. But yet the world is constantly accepting substitutes for true companionship and true fellowship. They're satisfied with a virtual world that has no real substance to it. And that's why the church, the true church, labors to be with each other, to spend time together, face to face, in the same room like this, sharing lives, encouraging, building up. There's no substitute for it. And listen, we're living in a day that the church is going to be challenged. And we're going to find out that many people are very satisfied with simply getting an artificial intelligence of a sermon versus real, actual study, labor, prayer that produces what would feed their souls in any given week. We're really going to find that out and what people value in regards to what the congregation truly is. It's pressed upon us more than ever in history as it seems. If people are going to look after that which is authentic and real versus that which is absolutely fake. And passing is a mist. There's no substitute for Christ coming from heaven to earth. And being a real live substitute in the flesh for us, walking with his disciples, dying on a cross, being buried and raising physically and gloriously from the grave to be the hope of our salvation, the surety of our justification. There's no substitute for it, no letter for it. The actual history of it happening mattered and the history of these things happening mattered to the church so that the church would go on testifying of these things That we do not lose hope in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart, just like they did. We see here that there's this amazing, almost unbelievable thing that happens. Because they prayed. They sought the king above over the king on earth. They didn't fear the king below because they feared the king above. And they prayed, and as a result, we see here, the very night, this is uh, what Charles Wesley, in, that, in his song, he writes, my chains fell off, my soul was free. It's this uh, accounting of his conversion, and it, isn't it a great, a great picture of conversion? This same miracle, certainly representative of anybody who has experienced True freedom in Christ and being set free from their sins, being set free from the guilt of sin and being able to stand up and follow after the Lord. That's certainly an appropriate thing to do with this type of text. But we see here what happened was an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter and a light shone in the cell And I love this. He struck Peter in the side. You would think all kinds of things here. One, some believe that it's a reminder of what Jesus experienced on the cross when he was pierced in the side. Um, I tend to think here that it's it's just a wonderful picture of, of the growth of Peter as he was able to rest 
so soundly. I mean, think about it. If you were chained with two guards on both sides in a cell, awaiting your execution, the anxieties within, let alone the physical circumstances without, would make it at least a little bit imaginably difficult to rest. But here he is, like his Lord, on a boat with wind and waves sailing all around him of the world, and he's here asleep. So much so that he needs an angel to give him a swift kick in the side just to get him up. Now, I'm not saying he kicked him, but it's just an absolutely uh, hilarious scene where he's at rest. And he doesn't even know what's going on. He's thinking it, it's a vision the whole time. It's only after the whole thing happens that he realizes he's actually out of jail. And so, picking up where I was reading, he said, get up quickly. His chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, which is a reminder of the Passover, when the, 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 the believing Jews had been told to put on their sandals and to put the blood over their doors and they were brought out of Egypt and free. There's definitely a, a fragrance of that going on here in the text. There's a, there's a past, a past um, reminder of the Passover and then there's also one that's happened very contemporary in their time of the crucifixion of their Lord. All going on here. When you see what's upcoming with the women in the tomb and not believing the testimony and all that, it parallels our Lord's story exactly. And it parallels the story of deliverance in the past exactly. You see, these things are all sending the same message of a God who is above all kings, who delivers men from all enemies. And it says that he said to wrap your cloak around you. Around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel. Uh, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate. And think about this: this is before we go into stores and the and the doors just open automatically. And here in the Bible, back in the first century, we see here. The iron gates just opened up. They walked through. And then the angel immediately leaves him. And Peter comes to himself and he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel. Mark that down, his angel, for what the servant girl says later. And rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish, all the Jewish people were expecting. Emphasis. Peter knew, the church knew, the real enemies, at least earthly speaking, was the liberal church of the day. The day that didn't, the people that didn't believe in Jesus that were riding as prostitutes on the back of the beast of Rome. And there they are. And Peter says, I've been rescued from Rome, the beast, and I've been rescued from the prostitute that rides it. And when he realized this, doesn't it take some time often to realize the deliverances that we experience? Sometimes we don't even know the things that God has rescued us from. That's why it's not contingent upon you knowing the exact date and time when you were saved. Thanks be to God for that. If it depended on that, 
that everybody had to have a card they filled out an exact time when they had trusted Christ in order to get to heaven. It would be just a miserable thing to have to work up. I mean, there would be even maybe bookstores that would be producing little certificates and cards to make sure that you had one, wouldn't they? There'd be all types of programs. Churches will be built at a slant so you make sure you got the invitation. Songs will be written so you can make sure you can sing long enough to get the next person to fill out the card. Rededications will be called for again and again and again. Repeated baptisms being done over and over again just to make sure. Let me tell you today, the surety of your salvation isn't found in anything you do. It's found in what Christ did on that cross and what he did perfectly. And we haven't done any of it perfectly right. We endeavor to follow the Lord in obedience to his word. And we want to get that right. Repent, believe the gospel, and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do those things. Honor him. At the end of the day, the reason why we go to heaven is the grace of God by faith alone in Christ alone. And we receive that as a gift. And some people don't have the assurance in this life. And some people have great assurance in this life and some people struggle with it. But you have to be looking to the cross to be able to have the certainty. Not to yourself, not to what you've done, not to the cards you filled out, not to your church membership, not to your baptism, to Christ. That's what makes a Christian. Are you looking to Christ today? Are you looking to him to be the only savior, the savior alone, nothing else? Not to your spouse, not to your family, not to your job, not to your government. Salvations of the Lord. Now, it says, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Again, here they are. What are they doing? What's their response? Stage a protest, gather a bunch of people, go outside the hall, sing, um, hold up signs, um, lobby in, 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 the, in the Roman square. No, none of that's going on. None of that's found in the entire book of Acts. They're not doing that. Yes, they do preach to the state. They do call them to obey God's law. They do do that. But it's preaching and it's prayer. Again and again and again. It's humility. And you have the opposite in Herod because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, church, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. Peter wrote that, the guy that got out of this prison by an angel. And he didn't want you to be uninformed in the fact that you have an adversary. And depending on the day, perhaps we're a little more confident that he's bound and being bound by the strong, the strong man's being bound and and that Christ is, is going through and taking the kingdom there. And then some days when we see brothers and sisters being killed and lots of bad things happen in the world, we wonder if it's still future. But nonetheless, we struggle. We're Christians that struggle. We struggle in our minds. We struggle in our hearts and all that. That's not what matters. What matters is, Peter says, be firm in your faith. Be firm. That's your job up against the devil. The devil's coming against you in this world. Stand firm. 
You're, you're, not, you're, you're making progress so long as you stand firm as a church against Satan and his lies. And it says he'll flee from you. And then it follows. The reconstruction project is done by the Lord himself who confirms and strengthens and establishes you. And that's all from 1 Peter 5. This man who's delivered out of prison testifies of the way they acted here in integrity to the gospel was standing firm in the Lord. Now they go to Mary's house because Mary evidently is quite wealthy. She has a servant girl, which means if she had a monument put up in our day, they would tear it down because she had a slave working for her. This woman was wealthy enough to where she had a large enough house for quite a bit of the church to gather. And it was late at night, evidently, if we look at this, because it notes the time back in verse 6, in the very night, Peter's sleeping. So he's let out at night, he goes to the church at night, and what are they doing at night? They're praying. Some Christians in some countries are amazed that churches in America don't have all-night prayer gatherings. It's just beyond them that the, the American church is not committed to pray like that at times and seasons. That they're not fervently, they, they're not seeing that the answer to tyrannical government takes hugely sacrificial, painful, agonizing prayer that goes through the night. They're just amazed. Perhaps we should be more amazed that we don't. But it's not to lay a guilt trip. Let's ask this. Just to pray. Instead of thinking that we can produce some type of lobbying activity or we can produce some type of protest or we can scream loud enough or we can argue good enough to this world to change things. When the church constantly did two things, they're praying and they're preaching. But prayer is undergirding all of what they would see changed in the lives of people for the world to be turned upside down. And they're wise about it. They're not, they're not sitting there with the door open. Come on in, Herod. Come on in, Rome. They're praying at night for a reason, too. During the day, it probably would have been quite difficult to get away with the gathering. So they're gathering at night. And as they gather at night in this context, they're meeting at this woman's house. And Peter shows up at the door free. Servant girl runs to the door. She's checking things out. Here's Peter's voice. So she obviously had to have some experience with him in regards to knowing who he was and being around the believers there. We don't know if she was a believer or not a believer. I think it's also just a little encouragement to Peter. If you remember that he denied the Lord three times and once before a girl kind of like this. Here he's at the door and you love the scene. She goes back. They say, you're out of your mind. And they kept saying it was his angel. And many people get tripped up in this whole thing with the angels. Do they believe in guardian angels? Well, they may have, but uh, I think it's safer to say there was a belief by the Jews that um, 
somehow a, a messenger or there, there was some type of a representative of the person who had died who had come to them. True or not, that's possibly what was believed. Um, we do know this. We do know that there's a place in which which it's said that um, the face of the angels of infants um, behold, they behold them. And so there, there appears to be protective angels mentioned there by our Lord, and we can't get around that. But the idea of a, we don't want to go there with the idea of a guardian angel. This ain't Clarence, let's put it that way on <laughs> Wonderful Life, right? We know what it doesn't mean. But we know they had some type of belief that this possibly wasn't Peter, it was his angel, it was his angelos, his messenger, whatever that meant. They didn't believe that it was actually Peter. They didn't believe it was actually him. And, uh, and let, me, let me say, by the way, that the whole rescue out of this is amazing, isn't it? And it's the truth that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And, and it's indicated here by Peter's words himself that he didn't even see that it was merely the Lord's angel. It seems like he looks at this angel as if it was the Lord himself who delivered him out. Because that's what he says. He says the Lord brought him out of the prison. He, he explains to them after he continues to knock at the door. Can you imagine? They're still talking about this. Peter has to keep knocking at the door. I love these details that Luke puts in. And they finally let him in and he shares with them this whole account. But isn't it true that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him? In fact, if you, if you look at that great psalm in Psalm 34, let me just read a section to, to you of encouragement to you. Is that Psalm 34 says, The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Let me relate that to something. The man... The man who was just killed named James. He went right to glory. He didn't have to have a long obituary to go to heaven. And neither did the poor man who nobody gave any account to. Nobody probably looked at or or at least nobody admired him. And the poor man in Lazarus, if you read there in, I believe it's Luke 16. And the one is gone there to suffering and irrevocably so and the other has gone and been taken up by an angel to Abraham's bosom and he is in paradise if you would and it's said there that the poor man in this life had nothing but now he's with the Lord per se and the one who had all the riches and everything in this life he had him in this life but now he is separated now he is separated from all goodness and grace of God You know the story. You know the account. What's really valued? You look at James. The church looks at James and says he's in glory. They look at him and say the poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's the picture. What's the second picture? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That's Peter. What's the last, last thing happens? Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And what you're going to find is a bunch of people coming and they're wanting food. Why are they wanting food? Well, we just heard about a famine predicted in the previous chapter. And then you're seeing that the king is cutting off things so that he's dependent upon. He wants to be the one that gives the food. We're getting to that. But let me finish the section 
He tells them the deliverance. He, tells the, he says, go tell James and the brothers. That's James, the brother of the Lord, the one that's still living. And the brothers, the other apostles and the, and the uh, people of God. Notice that's their favorite term, not Christian, that's used three times. They were so glad to be called of God's family, adopted in God's son. And um, Herod searched for him, didn't find him. And then what happens is always what happens in the case of such types of situations is the ones who were responsible for guarding the prisoner who lost him are put to death. And we'll see that come back in Acts 16 when we see the Philippian jailer go to kill himself. He knows what's coming. That's what happens here. So we see here fulfillment of the psalm in 34.7. We see... We see... Uh, a remnant of Luke sixteen twenty two in particular with the rich man and the poor man facing martyrdom, death. But the way this concludes is that Herod responds like tyrants respond. And you don't need a tyrant um, just in government to see this type of behavior. It's in any type of a a tyrannical type of spirit in people. They always have to be in control. They always have to be the hero of the show. They always have to be the one that brings the food. They always have to be the ones that are getting all the credit. They always have to be the ones that get all the applause. They live for the glory of man. They love it rather than the glory of God. The difference of the church is these people had faith to do in secret what was required to really make a difference. And they weren't putting themselves on an unsensible display to the world so they could get the glory. These people are going to the God believing he is king over all. Tyrants, the only thing they can do when their dreams get dashed and they will. That's why we need not fear them. God judges tyrants. You don't need to fear the civil government because this text tells us he will judge them. So what does the king do? He goes and takes a vacation because he didn't get his way. He has to get a diversion. He has to escape. He has to get away. Things didn't go his way. Things are too stressful down at the home front. He says, I got to get away. That's the only thing I can do. It's like Saul, right? Play me a song, David. I got to find an escape. What kind of escapes are you seeing tyrannical people go after again and again and again? Why aren't they at their post? Because they're not getting their way. Why, why why, Why is the man at a home who's supposed to be leading his family run out and go grab the drink and escape because he's not getting his way? Why does the tyrannical leader go and take a vacation in the midst of great need? Because he's not getting his way. And why do we not fear such men? Because they are but men who will be judged. And here this man goes and he can't get away from the fact of what he's created. He's obviously cutting off the food supply to the point where people have to depend on the government for the food and therefore they all show up. 
And it says they depended on the king's country for food. Why would they have to depend on the king's country for food? Because that's what tyrants do. They make everybody dependent on them for the food. And that's what's going on. You see tyranny all the time through history. It's really a spirit of Satan and the evil one. And the people are shouting here that he was the voice of a God and not a man. Why? We know from the book, uh, the histories of Josephus, exactly the royal robes he put on. In the midst of when people are hungry and have to depend on him for food because he wants the glory. He won't let them take care and plant their own. He's designing and putting on a royal robe that's made of completely of silver. Josephus records it was completely of silver so that when the sun hit it, it would look like a god. It wasn't just the voice. It was the whole theater. And this man who's but a man putting himself out there to be a god. And what did the people do? Because they wanted more food. They did what slaves to the civil government always do. And they cry and do whatever he wants. To get a morsel of bread. And they shout, that's the voice of a God and not of a man. We don't know if if the oratory was that great or not. It's just what they said was great. Because they were hungry. And they depended on them now. And what happened though? It's the thing that will happen to all tyrants eventually. It's the thing that's happened to every tyrant in history up to this point. It's the same pattern set here. God will judge them. And an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The same fate was spoken of, of the, the one who set himself up in the temple back In the intertestamental period, Antiochus Epiphanes, it's recorded in an apocryphal book in the Maccabees that Antiochus Epiphanes also died this way and he was eaten of worms. So you can know here again, tyrants will be judged by the Lord. Now, in the midst of all this, you would think, okay, things just went along and the church survived. But that's not what it says. It says the word of God Increased and multiplied. And this is why this is why in the world we're not to be afraid of civil government when they join together with the liberal church to persecute the real church, because in the end of it, God will judge them both. And God will bless his church. And the word of God has not been put out and it didn't even become just a matter of just mere survival. But it says here the word increased. It grew. It's right that the you could say that the the martyr's blood is the seed of the church, but not just the martyr's blood. All of this is seed of the church. And the word of God goes out and grows and the church grows. And we should be under no pessimism in regards To the kingdom of God growing when we have the true king on the throne whom we can go to and get grace and mercy to help us in time of need at any time. And the circumstances may present us that sometimes 
Where it becomes so dangerous, we cannot meet in the daytime. We have to pray through the night. But we're given and afforded the daytime now. Let us pray in the day. And let us be thankful, church, that we can. Let's stand together for prayer. Our Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege to preach your holy word. I pray that this will be used of encouragement to build up this body and the people who have been called to this place to serve you. I pray that you would encourage them in such a way that it would promote holiness in their lives and trust and prayer unto you. I pray you will forgive us of our sins and I pray you will bless us as we commune together and as we study your word throughout this day. Oh, Father, we pray that our trust will be consistently in you, our Lord, and not in just but men. And that, Father, we would be built up in the holy faith so that we would not be tossed by every wind of doctrine that's blown our way. That we would not fear civil authority, nor would we stand daunted at the prospect of the future of the church. But rather, we would live with hope in the glory of your name, knowing you're the same God today as you were then. And you caused the word to increase. And may you do it again. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're with us today and you share the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do invite you to share with us in this time of communion at the table. Uh, If you are yet to put your faith in the Lord, we would desire that you would spend time truly contemplating um, that need in your life and that you would go to him in prayer, that you would observe and hopefully see that the Lord is among us in this place. Uh, But as we take of this and as we celebrate that which represents our union with him and each other, Um, We pray that it would still be a blessing to all who are here. So we ask now a brief prayer. Father, please bless the elements of this bread that represents your, your son's body and this wine that represents the Lord's blood. We pray that you would strengthen us and use it, that it might call to remembrance what Jesus has done for us and that we might also have the benefits of the gospel applied to our lives afresh. We harbor no ill feelings towards any in this world. We pray you would forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven those who have sinned against us. And we desire no root of bitterness would ever grow up in us, but that we would come knowing we were forgiven so freely that we are to forgive everyone who has wronged us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.